the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 21, Episode 16. The Supreme Court Decision on Affirmative Action. In conversation with Luke Boso, Associate Professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law. The U.S. Supreme Court handed down two decisions yesterday which will have a profound impact on affirmative action. Luke Boso, Associate Professor of Constitutional Law, is with us to discuss both cases. Hello, Luke, and welcome back to the show. Hello, and thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Luke, please take a moment to tell us about teaching constitutional law at USF's School of Law. Sure. I am um, in my ninth year teaching constitutional law at the University of San Francisco School of Law, and I love it. It's truly a dream job, although it can be challenging at times, given how rapidly and in some cases dramatically the Constitution is changing, at least in the current court's interpretation of it. But I teach two classes, um, Constitutional Law 1 in the fall, which focuses mostly on congressional power, executive power, justiceability issues, the role of courts, etc. And then in the spring, I teach a Constitutional Law 2 course that focuses more on individual rights, free speech, religion, establishment, etc. So the the students get a, a wide breadth of constitutional law with me, whether they like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've always found constitutional law fascinating. When I was studying law, it was my favorite, my favorite subject. Uh, so I would willingly sign up for both of those courses in a heartbeat. Well, Luke, the court ruled on two cases on Thursday. Students for fair admission versus Harvard and students for fair admission versus University of North Carolina who was the plaintiff in both cases, and why two cases? There were two different cases because the source of law at the heart of the challenge was different depending upon the relevant university. So Harvard was the plaintiff, in, or I'm sorry, um, Harvard was being challenged in one case because they are a private institution, and for private institutions of higher education, they're governed by Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which prevents or prohibits race discrimination And then for the University of North Carolina, this is a public institution, and so they are governed by constitutional principles, including the Equal Protection Clause. At the end of the day, it it doesn't matter that much in terms of um, the distinct challenges and the sources of law, because the court has essentially held that the same standards are going to apply, regardless of whether this is an Equal Protection or Title VI challenge. In other words, the same test applies. Mm -hmm. Let's launch into the decision itself. It's hot off the presses. I know you've spent a number of hours going over it. So let's talk about the decision itself. Sure. I I think to properly contextualize the decision requires a little bit of history in terms of where the court has been on affirmative action, if that's okay. Yes, of course. Yes, please. So this is a battle that's been, I think, brewing for quite a while. It really began in earnest at the Supreme Court in 1978 in a case called Bakke, which dealt with... University of California at Davis Medical School and a set-aside program that it had for students of color, uh, a certain amount of positions needed to go to minority applicants, et cetera. 
So that decision didn't produce a majority. It was a splintered decision, but it set the foundation for everything that came after because the dominant theory for what test applies ended up springing from that case. And it's a theory that's known as, or it's a test rather, that's known as strict scrutiny. And so strict scrutiny just means that when the government classifies on the basis of a suspect characteristic or trait of which the court has held that race and national origin is one Mm -hmm. that strict scrutiny applies meaning that the government has to have a compelling interest uh, that serves as the basis for this classification and the way it goes about achieving that interest needs to be narrowly tailored meaning necessary if there's anything that the government could do apart from relying on that category or that trait i.e. race, Mm -hmm. then the government needs to do that. So that didn't command a majority in Baki, but the seeds had been planted. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the 80s, the court in various decisions sort of went back and forth as to whether that should be the test for all race classifications, including, you know, so-called benevolent race classifications like affirmative action programs, or should a different test apply, maybe a more watered-down version since the impetus behind race-based affirmative action is not to harm, but rather to help. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of the debate in the 80s. Strict scrutiny did end up becoming the majority rule, and that stayed in place for a while. So the question that sort of the court had to develop after that was, well, what compelling interests could justify considering race in the context of admissions in higher education? Mm -hmm. And in a couple of well-known cases in the early 2000s, Gruder and Gratz, which are cited pretty heavily in yesterday's decision, court had talked about achieving the benefits of a diverse student body as a compelling interest. So that was one interest that universities could seek to achieve. Another interest is kind of remedying past proven or remedying the effects rather of past proven intentional discrimination on the basis of race. Mm -hmm. So those were the two dominant compelling interests that justified race-based affirmative action throughout the 2000s and the 2010s. Then we get to a case called Fisher, which I believe came out in 2016. Mm -hmm. And at issue there was, all right, well, if that's the compelling interest, achieving the benefits of diversity is expressly considering applicants' race the most narrowly tailored way of achieving of it. And what does that mean? What does narrow tailoring look like? And in Fisher, the court simply just clarified, you know, the government has to prove it that there aren't any other ways that it could achieve these benefits without considering race expressly. So the law, when Fisher came out, you know, folks thought this is it. This is the end of race-based affirmative action, but it wasn't. The court just kind of tightened what the test looked like, kind mm-hmm. of demanding evidence on that narrow tailoring prompt. Then, you know, President Trump obviously was elected and made three nominations and confirmations to the Supreme Court. The composition of the court today in 2023 looks much different than it did when Fisher was decided. And so the votes, you know, from the conservative perspective for for the conservative movement, which had kind of long been antagonistic towards race-based affirmative action, the votes were there. So yesterday's decision does a couple of important things. Are, Are you ready to launch into the actual decision? Yes, go ahead. Sure. So one thing that remains the same, the court didn't fundamentally change the test that applies when the government or a private educational institution subject to Title VI of the Civil Rights Act 
the court didn't fundamentally change the test that applies. It's still what's known as strict scrutiny. So we need a compelling interest. We need narrow tailoring, et cetera. What did change yesterday was that the court overruled what it had previously approved in Grutter and in Gratz and in Fisher with respect to the compelling interest. So the court told us yesterday that achieving the benefits of diversity in higher education is no longer a a compelling interest that can justify a race-based affirmative action, which means that there's really only one interest left Mm -hmm. that a university could consider, which is remedying past proven intentional discrimination. Mm -hmm. What that means in practice then is that a university has to prove that to consider an applicant's race is tied to that past discrimination. And that's tricky to do in 2023 when we are so far removed from Jim Crow segregation, for example, or mm-hmm. more express and over, overt forms of race discrimination. Mm-hmm. So when, when you read headlines that say affirmative action is over, it largely is given how limited the circumstances are going to be uh, for universities to take race into account. Mm-hmm. Let's come back to the practical effects of this decision. Was affirmative action, particularly in in law schools, and not only law schools, but uh, in in universities as a whole, was it widely practiced? I mean, we do have 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States, both private and public. So was affirmative action widely practiced throughout all 4,000, or was it more actively practiced in the most elite of the universities and law schools? I think it depends on what we mean when we ask whether it had been practiced. So I think one of the misconceptions about race-based affirmative action and race-conscious programs is that race is often the determinative factor in decision-making like this, particularly in higher education. And there is a perception that colleges all across America are giving an unfair advantage on the basis of race, et cetera. It's um, totalizing consideration. Mm-hmm. The, the way that the, so yes, many colleges and universities did consider race, but in a much more subtle way than I think is commonly understood. So mm-hmm. what, what the court told us in Grutter, Gratz, and Fisher was that if you're a university and you want to consider race to achieve these compelling benefits of diversity, to, to satisfy the narrow tailoring component of strict scrutiny, race can just be one small component of a holistic review. Mm-hmm. So it still has to be, you know, an analysis of the applicant's GPA, their lived experiences, their standardized test scores, whatever that might be. And then at the end of the day, if all else is, you know, equal across the board, then race can be one kind of soft factor, one one small plus that a university could give to an applicant to kind of push them over the the finish line on that point. So I would say, yeah, a, a lot of universities did kind of consider race as one small soft plus factor in this overarching holistic review. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not true in California. Voters through the proposition process you know, banned the use of racial considerations in higher ed admissions um, over a decade ago. Right. So we, I think we in Florida uh, are two states that had not expressly considered race for quite some time. But in other other states, yes, they were using it in a soft way. Now, particularly here in California and at the use in the UC system, where affirmative action, where throughout California, um, affirmative action was was ruled unconstitutional, I guess, for over ten years, and reaffirmed in a proposition in twenty twenty. 
hasn't there been a significant decline in minority enrollments in the UC system as a result? That does seem to be what the statistics suggest, is that you know, few, there are fewer students of color attending the UCs. And you, and you see the justices sort of debating those statistics to some extent you know, between the dissent and the majority opinions in yesterday's decision. Question, obviously, well, there's lots of questions, but one of which is, well, how much of a difference does it really make? And if, if strict scrutiny is the test and we're focused on narrow tailoring, if it doesn't make that much of a difference, then arguably universities didn't have to use race to begin with. But if it does make quite a bit of difference, with which the dissenting justices using those statistics suggest that it does, then maybe the answer is, well, there isn't a more narrowly tailored way to achieve these diverse student bodies other than considering race. And so that's why it was so important that the court in the majority overruled its past decision, finding that diversity in higher education is a compelling interest, because it kind of takes the court out of this conversation with respect to how do we achieve it? Does race really matter for achieving it? Because now that goal is no longer permissible. Mm -hmm. Now, in the lead up to this decision, there had been much discussion over the years, particularly in the Asian American community, that Asian American students were being disadvantaged in their applications to particularly the elite universities, uh, Harvard and Yale and so on and so forth, that they were being disadvantaged because of their ethnicity. Do these two decisions address that concern as stated by the Asian American community? There is a little bit of back and forth between the majority and dissenting opinions about that argument in particular and those statistics in particular. There does seem to be some evidence to suggest that at schools like Harvard, for example, Asian American enrollment had decreased in the past decade at various points in time. But then the dissent also cites competing statistics that suggest that actually considering race in some contexts and in some years and at some institutions actually helps Asian American applicants. So I don't know that the court conclusively answered that question with respect to whether it helps or harms. Mm -hmm. Let's come back to the to the delivery of the opinion itself yesterday. You had two justices, Justice Thomas, who was writing for the majority, and Justice Sotomayor, who was one of the dissenters, they both read their opinions from the bench, as did Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. Wasn't that kind of a break from precedent to actually have the justices read their opinions? And tell us about the the conflict, apparently, between their three opinions. I mean, well, sometimes the justices on, you know, particularly for hot-button issue cases, will read excerpts from their opinions. Um, that in of itself isn't necessarily unusual. One of the things that was unusual is that Justice Thomas doesn't normally. Justice Thomas sort of famously has a reputation for being a bit quieter on the bench, mm-hmm. uh, particularly with respect to oral arguments. Although in recent years, he has been showing more of a propensity to ask questions during oral arguments, so maybe that's a trend that's changing but he doesn't typically read his opinions from the bench. So so that was notable. I think it sort of plays into this other dynamic on the court that you're implying with respect to Justice Sotomayor uh, and Justice Brown-Jackson, President Biden's recent appointee to the court. All three of these justices are you know, representative of communities of color. They obviously bring different ideological perspectives, but you sort of get the sense when 
you see the spectacle of the opinions being read. And when you read the rhetoric in, you know, their competing decisions, that this is a very personal issue to these justices in particular, um, particularly as they sit on a Supreme Court that has historically not been particularly racially diverse. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're part of a legal profession that has not historically been racially diverse and, in fact, has imposed form- many formal and informal barriers to um, to access and entry. So this this felt you know, unusually personal, I would say, is part of what struck me about it. Now, both Justice Thomas and Justice Sotomayor, so I'm told, were both beneficiaries of affirmative action rules for them getting into law school. So I guess there was a, a personal perspective that they brought to uh, to both of the opinions. Yeah, and I think that on the one hand, I mean, yes, anytime that you're talking about someone who has been through the higher education process during the years of affirmative action, who is a person of color, and you're thinking about the admissions process and their application, I mean, it's hard to sort of disaggregate how race did and didn't play a role Mm -hmm. um, in part because, you know, everyone submits a personal statement, for example, or I shouldn't say everyone, typically applicants are submitting a personal statement. And so if you're a person of color or you're part of a marginalized community, your race or your identity or your background is going to be a part of that personal narrative. And so it's, it's sort of hard to say definitively how much of that personal narrative and how much of your racial story has played a, you know, a definitive role. That, I think, is part of what has bothered Justice Thomas in particular so much when you read his affirmative action opinions over the years. He really bristles at the idea that he is a beneficiary of race-based affirmative action. He, he's very much sort of a, a meritocracy, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, mm-hmm. individualistic kind of thinker. And to him, one of his core complaints over the years in arguing that the court has gone astray on affirmative action is that you know, for him, it, it does more marginalization than, than good. It puts applicants of color in this box, suggests that they can't compete and make it on their own, that they need special help from the government. And that breeds resentment from populace writ large, and it targets them and it stigmatizes them. So I, I think for him, to the extent that there's this narrative that affirmative action benefited him personally, it's it's contrary to his individualistic ideology that he he brings um, to his equal protection jurisprudence. Whereas when you focus on the Sotomayor and Brown-Jackson and Kagan opinions, Sotomayor in particular and Justice Brown-Jackson make really compelling arguments about sort of the systemic racism that affects, you know, American society writ large and sort of how it's an inescapable aspect of the experience of being a person of color in America and trying to enter into elite institutions and gain a seat at the table, et cetera. So for them, they're not willing to really disaggregate kind of how race has played a role in their own journeys from kind of equal protection jurisprudence and the affirmative action conversation more generally, because they feel like this is more of a kind of a systemic problem and that individual solutions aren't the answer and that it's okay for the government to sort of step in and offer those soft pluses to at least in some small way, try to get at uh, both institutional and you know, structural racist structures that have been um, standing in folks' way. So two very different perspectives, the perspective that you just outlined from, from Justice Thomas and the perspectives of Sotomayor and Justice Brown-Jackson. 
so, so this is the another momentous decision. Last year, of course, was the Roe, the overturn of Roe versus Wade, and now we have uh, affirmative action going by the boards. So Justice Roberts, who has been on the the court now for sixteen plus years, eighteen years, I guess, since two thousand and five. Is this now the Roberts Court? Are we now seeing a taking shape of a, a very different kind of court in large measure because of the three appointments by President Trump? There was already a, a very strong conservative base on the court before Trump got the three appointments. But are we now seeing really the solidification of that conservative majority and to expect to see more such dramatic precedents being uh, being overturned yeah i i think that it has been a really interesting two years i do think that we are in the roberts court era whatever that might be i think that there are a couple of different strains of the roberts court era and the roberts court jurisprudence both of which are, are conservative but maybe you know with different ends in mind. One, and, and you know, this is the the strain that we're seeing sort of play out in, the, in public opinion and in the, in the press and that everyone wants to talk about on issues of you know, social identity, social justice, individual liberty, marginalized groups, etc. So these hot button social issues, mm-hmm. there is very much a staunchly socially conservative ideology at play mm-hmm. in overturning Roe versus Wade and ending affirmative action in kind of changing the contours of religious liberty. A lot of the religious liberty cases have been going in favor of kind of Christian claimants who are mm-hmm. seeking exemptions from otherwise generally applicable laws, uh, Second Amendment rights, LGBT rights. There was an opinion that just came out today that was not favorable for LGBT rights. So on the on the hot button social issues, yeah, I think we're seeing a very staunchly sort of conservative approach. Um, one thing that's been interesting since Dobbs with respect to Roberts until this week, the court had been, I would say, uncharacteristically muted in some of its decisions. Mm-hmm. And you you did see more unanimous decisions being issued. You did see Roberts and Kavanaugh, for example, kind of crossing ideological lines to vote with the more liberal justices on the court. But on some of those issues, they related more closely to kind of issues of democracy mm-hmm. and election law. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the court previously, I think earlier this week, rejected the independent state legislature theory of election law, which right. would have stripped state Supreme Courts of their ability to review what mm-hmm. you know, states are doing for elections. So I think there, that there is this fear among some of the conservative justices, perhaps, that you know the court got a lot of backlash after Dobbs. Mm-hmm. And you know, perhaps folks have lost confidence in the court's ability to be a neutral arbiter. And what might this mean for you know, the consolidation of power on the right. And so I think you know, part of what the Roberts Court has done this year is pull back a little bit on issues that more directly relate to democracy, which arguably could help bolster the court's image and make folks less likely to question its legitimacy. But on those other social sort of hot button issues, it is staunchly socially conservative. Fascinating. Luke, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts? I think we are in the very early stages of you know, a pretty significant conservative revolution in constitutional thinking in a variety of areas. We saw it last year with respect to the issue of unenumerated fundamental rights. Overturning Roe versus Wade was enormous, and we've seen the dominoes fall in various states in terms of restricting reproductive rights and abortion access. We're seeing it with, with gun rights. The court's 
willingness to kind of freeze the law on guns to a point closer to the adoption of the 14th Amendment. I think we're seeing it on religious liberty in which kind of in contrast to other marginalized groups who've historically sought Supreme Court protection from discrimination or perceived discrimination, the court hasn't been particularly receptive to some of those claims, whereas the court has been extremely receptive to claims of kind of religious persecution from you know, more conservative Christians. So, I mean, just to name a few areas, I think that, you know, the conservative legal movement has really captured the ear of the Supreme Court in a pretty significant way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it, it's unclear how quickly the court will continue to proceed. There have been pretty dramatic changes in a variety of doctrinal areas just in the past two years. Perhaps maybe now the court steps on the brake a bit, again, sort of nodding to that concern about the court's own legitimacy and what the public considers of it. But mm-hmm. I'm not sure because we have a solid 6-3 conservative majority. The votes are there. There have been a lot of movement issues that the right has um, has been pursuing for a while that perhaps the moment is ripe. So, you know, I think one thing to keep an eye on are the states. I think I think state constitutions and sort of progressive federalism is where a lot of battles over kind of the rights for the marginalized are going to go. I'm not sure that the U.S. Constitution is um, as viable an avenue, perhaps, as it was two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, Luke, how can our listeners follow you? Well, I am. Um, you can search for me online. My website will pop up under the University of San Francisco. I am making um, a career move soon to Southwestern Law School in Los Angeles. I'll be a professor there, so you can find my website at Southwestern Law School. I'm on LinkedIn. You can also search for me on SSRN, the Social Science Research Network. All of my various writings are up and posted. And I've got a new article coming out that you can find there as well. It's going to be published in the Utah Law Review this fall. Uh, And it's called Religious Liberty, Discriminatory Intent, and the Conservative Constitution. And it really highlights a lot of the themes that we've been talking about today. And when will that be published? So that should be out, I would guess, around October. The Southwestern Law School will do a publicity blitz about it on their website and their Twitter feed. Uh, But it's already on SSRN if you're interested in the early draft. Very good. I'll make a point of following up on that. Sorry to hear of your move to Southern California. Uh, our loss here in San Francisco, uh, the Southlands gain, but congratulations to you and all the best. Uh, sounds like a terrific opportunity. Bittersweet. Yeah, <laughs> sure. After I love the University of San Francisco. I, I, I love the city here, but time for a new adventure, I guess. Well, you know, in managing a career, I can fully understand that sometimes a golden opportunity comes along that you just you simply can't pass up. So congratulations, Luke. Uh, very well-deserved promotion and look forward to continuing this dialogue as we go forward. You are our go-to constitutional lawyer that we hear at the San Francisco Experience podcast. Turn to whenever we have a, a major constitutional decision and momentous decisions like the one that we just had from the Supreme Court. So once again, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored, and please invite me back anytime. Absolutely, Luke. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 421. Listen to us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, 18 platforms in total, and join our listener audience that spans 65 countries. And the San Francisco Experience podcast was recently recognized as one of California's 25 best news podcasts by Feedspot.com.
This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. Thank you.